Hello, and welcome to Interdependent Study, our podcast where we engage in the learning and unlearning work for social justice and collective liberation. I'm Aaron. And I'm Damian. Thank you so much for joining us today. For those new to our podcast, Interdependent Study is meant to be a space and community for folks who believe in and want to do the work for social justice. Each week, we'll bring something new to the table and discuss our thoughts and feelings about it through the lenses of who we are and where we can go for a more just society. We want interdependent study to be a space where we're always learning with one another. Uh, and Damien's up this week. So what are you bringing to the table? I am. I have brought a documentary from HBO called The Soul of America to the table for us to talk about today. Um, it's actually based on the 2018 bestseller by John Meacham uh, with the same name. And it follows John around the country as he travels to different speaking engagements and 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 whatnot. And at the core of it, it features John and other historians and experts sort of examining this country's current political, historical, and social circumstances by exploring its past and the many lessons that can be learned from our history. Mm-hmm. And specifically, the documentary talks about our present day and uses things like the and and moments in time like the women's suffrage movement, the McCarthy era, uh, and the civil rights movement to do that. And, you know, I think it was a fascinating watch. And so I'm excited for us to talk about it today. And, you know, Aaron, I'm curious, what stood out to you about the soul of America? Um, I think there's a lot in it um, for it not even being too long. Like, I think it was an hour and 16 minutes. Something like that. Yeah. Is what it says on HBO when you when you hit play. Um, (laughs) But I think so. some of the things that stood out to me were things that you've already mentioned. Um, I think. Um, you know, like the, his moment speaking, um, to either the camera or to an audience, yep. um, were cool. Um, but I think the, the history involved in it is what stood out to me. So, um, the, and there's really great connections between history, uh, and then some of the things that are happening today. Yep. Um, so he pointed out that there are lessons to learn from the suffrage movement from, uh, McCarthy and I think particularly his downfall. Yes. Um, and the civil rights movement. Um, and then some of those lessons that we learn from those different moments in history are things to do and, and some of are things to avoid. Yeah, good um, point, good so point, there's yeah. like the positive and negative of those things. Uh, but as somebody who's uh, appreciates and enjoys history, um, I really liked those parallels yeah. and, and seeing them sort of play out in a uh, effective manner. Um, there are also a few moments that I, I didn't appreciate as much that we'll oh. talk about a little bit later. Okay. All right. Yeah. I'm excited to hear about that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the things that struck me right away in this documentary was what John Meacham said in the opening parts of it. One of the first things he said, and I'm going to quote here, he says, history tells us that this particular era is difficult, but not unique. The forces that are shaping the worst parts of us right now are forces that are part of the American character. And I just remember thinking like, oh, woof, all right, like, John hitting us hard right out the gate. Yeah. yeah. Um, And, you know, it's this idea that America has these dark forces and they are part of this country's fabric. Like that is deep. And and it reminded me of our conversation about whether or not America is redeemable in our episode about the Seeing America documentary a couple weeks ago. And specifically that conversation in it between Nicole Hannah-Jones and Hassan Minhaj. And so I, I just sort of appreciated that, like right out the gate, he hit us hard with that. 
And then a little bit later on, John says, and, and I'm going to quote here again, he says, I'm not saying it's all going to be fine, but I think it's on all of us. If we don't arm ourselves with a historical understanding of how complex our history was, we're not going to be able to think clearly enough to react in real time to save this country. And so, you know, I just really appreciated those two thoughts in concert with one another and and sort of coupling that with the historical references and, and case studies, if you will, that were that were used in this documentary. You know, f- for example, John talks about what we're seeing in this country with Trump or what we saw in this country with Trump. And I, actually, I should say we're still seeing. Um, yeah, he's still releasing little uh, tweets on on on, uh, on paper, letterhead. Letterhead. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was like, what's the word? Um you know, he, he talks about that, but he took us back to 100 years ago when Woodrow Wilson was president mm-hmm. and also took us back to the McCarthy era in the 1950s. And the forces that were at play in those moments are so eerily similar to what we saw throughout the, the Trump presidency, right? And yeah. so for me, this documentary really served as a powerful reminder of why knowing and understanding history is important. And it actually inspired a bit of hope in me, I think. Mm -hmm. Like the fact that we can say we've been here before in more ways than one. And it took a tremendous effort to make things better back then. You know, that same mindset certainly applies now. And, and, And this documentary to me really showed us that history can play an important role in the work we do for social justice, for sure. Yeah. I think as you said at the start of that, um, comment yeah he named some of the things uh that are happening as nativism sexism isolationism um and that they are perennial forces in the u.s and that they ebb and they flow yeah um and i thought it was a great way to characterize those values that are sort of the hidden undercurrent in the u.s that we don't talk about as much um i think i i would uh if i was um talking about them i would be more specific about what's happening in nativism Mm. um, because i think it's easy to use nativism as something um and it's not inaccurate it's just not specific enough i think right um to to so you could use that umbrella term to kind of gloss over some of the particularly violent pieces of american history just by calling it nativism right like i think ignoring um um specifically white as a part of that name nativism is important um because i think you know i think it's easy to hear nativism and just think like um sort of anti-immigration right right um and it was it's it nativism also includes that other part around white supremacy yes um but so uh, shifting a little bit, I think connecting to a particular case study moment that stood out for me was Alice Paul. Ah, uh, yes. Right. And her leadership yeah. of the suffrage movement. Um, you know, they show in the documentary that she had women stand outside the White House, basically picketing all of the gates of the White House. Yep. Um, entries and exits um, demanding the right to vote for women. Um, and I think. It's interesting because looking back on those images now, they feel very familiar yep. to what we've seen through history. Absolutely. Um, but at the time, it was basically a brand new tactic yeah. in the U.S. Um, and she had go- gone to see the suffrage movement in um, England, yep. uh, and uh, which uh, was characterized by one of the historians in the, in the documentary as uh, pretty militant. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she brought back some of that um, organizing 
uh, ethos, I guess, yep. to, to with the her. U.S. Yep. Um, with her. Um, and so I think there's a lot to learn in that. I think uh, their dedication to the tactic and continuing that through all seasons, right? Like All seasons, yes. All winter, spring, oh summer. Um, yeah, which is a, a lot in uh, or can be a lot in uh, D.C., mm-hmm. uh, living, living here, uh, around here. So... Um, I think, and throughout the beginning of World War One, too. Right. So there was this other political pressure. You don't protest a wartime president mm-hmm. because we're all supposed to be on the same side yeah. and, and fighting for the cause. And there's a lot um, going on. Or joining on. the cause, right? So there's a lot. There's a lot happening. Um, and so, you know, I think the organization of all of that is uh, was amazing. Uh, but you know, they found people in power. Yeah. who I mean by they, mm-hmm. uh, as they frequently do, found ways to shut down the protest. They arrested and charged uh, women with made-up charges yep. um, because they weren't doing anything illegal. Mm-hmm. Um, and they threw them into a workhouse. But they still had women continue to show up. Oh, yeah. Um, and so the partic- persistence and organization, I think, is super admirable. Um, and it's still marred by... Racism and white supremacy. Yes, um, because Ida B. Wells showed up from Chicago with a group of black women mm-hmm. to join a march that that Alice Paul and some other folks had, um, some other women had organized for um, around the inauguration of Woodrow Wilson, yep. um, who was the president that they were protesting. Um, and Alice Paul stopped them from marching. Said, "You can't join us. We can't," because she um, believed that if they had black women join the cause, then it would it would lessen their yep. message um, because of the number of um, racist white men mm-hmm. in power who they were trying to get to shift. Right. Um, and so, um, right, like there's a lot that's admirable about what they what they did mm-hmm. and their organization and commitment to it. And we have these characteristics woven into it that excludes some women who were also at the time fighting for that right to vote. Um, and so I think I really like that case study because there's a lot in it, um, in finding new ways to create protest and and disruption. Um, and it's a case study and why it's so important for us to keep intersectionality at the forefront of our Mm -hmm. work and considering the different ways that, um, the things that we're fighting for will impact people differently and, and trying to be as um, broad-based as possible in, in terms of fighting for justice or, or freedom. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I'm so glad you brought this up, you know, and I totally agree. Like, and I'm, and I'm glad we can talk about it because as I was watching that part of the documentary, I, I thought about how this isn't something we've talked about here on the show before. Um, and I, I think that conversation that they have around, and that this moment in the documentary about the women's suffrage movement was really one of the most interesting parts of it for yeah. me. You know, it was one of the most compelling parts because I just appreciated how they shared that story of Ida B. Wells in particular, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. I can appreciate Alice Paul and and the other women that were uh, a part of the movement. But, you know, as folks probably know, Ida was a, a black woman and a journalist and an, an activist and civil rights leader. You know, I, I think she would be one of the most famous and iconic black women in our history when we think about it. And, you know, I love that this documentary and the folks talking about this moment between Ida and Alice, you know, just named what it was plainly. Like it was racism. It was white supremacy, as you say. And, you know, I appreciate the point that they made 
that this moment in history reminds us that we have to be constantly thinking about the ways in which justice movements can do damage while they're out here trying to do good. All right. And so you have to be, as you mentioned, sort of mindful of all of the intersectionality um, in the work. I, I appreciate you saying that. And I, I just think that that story and this moment in history and the lessons there are so powerful for us um, as we engage in this work. And it's one of the it's one of the reasons why I love um, and appreciate and really align with the, the efforts of the Movement for Black Lives. Mm-hmm. Um because I think their vision, and it's all on the website, so folks can visit it and, and read it for themselves too, but I think their vision is truly inclusive in every way possible. Um, and that is just, you know, as we've talked week in and week out on this show, is just so important in, in this work. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think going to check out what the Movement for Black Lives is creating is super um, vital because they're bringing together people from across different parts of um the you know movement, movement for yeah. black lives um uh as a sort of um collective in co-creating the the world they want to see yes um, so um yeah and i think um shifting a little bit and thinking about the um the parallels between japanese internment during world war ii mm. and family separation at the border yes um the way that they uh, in the documentary, uh, parallel those two things, I think is remarkable. Yes. Right? Like they bring in George Takai, mm. um, uh, famous, uh, actor, um, and activist. And he talked about his experience with being imprisoned for the entirety of World War II. Right. So he tells the story about, um, being taken from their house, um, by soldiers, uh, in California, and then moved to like a farm and kept in a horse stable that yep. he described for a bit. And then uh, I think uh, weeks or months later, after living in a horse stable, right, um, then being put into a train and taken to Arkansas, um, you know, so a lot of the images of that time um, actually reminded me of images I saw in history of like concentration camps yes. and things that the Nazi party did to Jewish people um, and, and other people as well that they targeted. Um, so th- those images were, um, I think a reminder of this part of history that I think sometimes we gloss over mm-hmm. of like the ways that, that, you know, we did that here as well. We, we mimicked the Nazi party here right. as well. Absolutely. Um, and also like, as I'm thinking about this and saying it, um, also thinking about the ways that the Nazi party copied the U S <laughs> right. And like looked to mm. um, racist policies and segregation and things as um, inspiration for, for real, for what they did. Yeah. Um, so th- like that's, there's a lot in there. Um, and then sort of foregrounding that to today, there are parallels to the cages that the U S government are using to keep children in as we yes. separate them from, from their families at the border which is something that is, you know, it's still happening. Yes. Um, right. Even in the, in the new administration and the new administration is deporting more people than, um, at a faster rate than, um, uh, the Trump administration did at, 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 in the last year of, of that presidency. Um, so there's a lot of, of parallels from today to, to then, um, that I, are moving and disturbing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. 
Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I, I was reminded of when I was watching this, I was reminded of Japanese internment and, and family separation sort of after Pearl Harbor in our conversation a few weeks ago about reparations, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and shout out to my uncle who I knew was listening. He's a dedicated listener. He tells <laughs> me every week he's listening. We appreciate it. You know, he reminded me that the United States did pay reparations to Japanese American families um, with the Civil Liberties Act in 1988. And so, you know, that's just a little note that reparations are possible, uh, you know, and have happened in this country that I wanted to make. And, you know, if you want to learn more about that, definitely Google the Civil Liberties Act of 1988. But yeah, it was heartbreaking to listen to George's story and to see the images at these internment camps. And I, I think that speaks to John's point about fear and yep. the dark forces in our country and how they have time and time again gotten the best of us in our decisions around how to treat other human beings in this country, right? Like, yeah. you know, there was obviously a real fear, um, but sort of targeting American citizens, you know, all Japanese American citizens, they were still American citizens, right? And doing this to them for years, I mean, was just, you know, deplorable. Um, mm-hmm. And it was, you know, disheartening to, it's disheartening uh, for sure. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I think there's there's so much to learn from that yes. um, in how we kind of move forward. And I think, right, there's some parallel, parallels there too of how, um, like anti uh, Muslim sentiment has grown mm-hmm. in the country following mm-hmm. like nine eleven and and that. Yeah. Um, and also I think there's some parallel to sort of the anti uh, Asian racist incidents that are happening. Yes. Um, too, as you know, um, people still call the coronavirus COVID nineteen um, by its sort of slanderous. Yep name um too and equates it to um uh, the geography and people right? right um and so those things that also feels like there's a there's some parallel there too absolutely that's a good that. point yeah um and so, so another piece of the documentary toward the end um and john meacham talks about some present day conditions mm-hmm. um so that also stood out to me. Um, he talked about a trust gap and a wealth gap. Oh yes. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the trust gap uh, that he talks about is that only 17% of the U S population uh, in a recent poll over in the last few years um, say that they trust the federal government to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas back in the sixties um, it was 77%. So it's a huge, huge yes. decrease. Um Right. Uh, and then he, the wealth gap that he talks about is different from the wealth gap we, we, we've um, we've talked about before on the show in terms yep. of a racial wealth gap. Right. right? Um, but he talks about the income needed to be middle class in the U.S. for a family of four, I believe. Right. Yes. Four, yep. um, is one hundred and thirty thousand dollars. That is the average income needed across the U.S. for a family of four to be considered middle class. Yep. And the actual average income is $56,000, right? So we're looking at almost an $80,000 gap between the average actual family income for a family of four and what's needed to be middle class, right? Um, Right, and so those are huge gaps, both for wealth and for trust. Um, And I think he he brings them up because they're driving a lot of the issues that we're facing. Yes. Um, I think his point 
is that when these concerns grow this much and become this stark, then we can be divided by demagogues and our worst impulses mm -hmm. that are that are present in American history, right? Um, because we can jump on a um, um, we can jump onto a bandwagon in yep. supporting a demagogue yep. um, who is promising to alleviate these concerns um, and blaming, right, like other groups of people for it, whether those are immigrants or mm -hmm. uh, people of color or, or what have you. And so it's easy to buy into that narrative when you feel these statistics. Um, and you're living or, them. Yeah. And you're living them. And yeah. so it, it, they feel more real, yes. right, when... Um, when it's it's not right and it's it's a <laughs> yeah um so you can you can fall into these traps of kind of a horizontal blame game of mm -hmm. like oh it's my you know neighbor's fault or you know my hypothetical neighbor's yeah. fault mm -hmm. um rather than looking at power structures that create these issues of um a wealth gap yeah right so yeah i think that was the big point that i was like this this feels super relevant is like um you feel these things and then you make a decision on which way you're gonna go and it doesn't necessarily feel like you're, like you're making a decision on like am i gonna go with a demagogue who's buying into like nativism and yeah. these things or am i gonna go with um recognizing that we have to change the structures that are creating these conditions absolutely yeah yeah. Yeah. Those, those statistics were incredible and sort of just wild to hear. And, you know, it, like you said, it sort of, it certainly makes it easy to see how folks both throughout history and definitely in our present day really fall into those traps that you mentioned and, and really sort of adopt this us versus them mentality. Yeah. Right. And how, um, so much of that is preyed upon and inflamed by folks like Trump. Right. And I mm -hmm. think about even right, what's happening right now, you know, recently, you know, the, the COVID relief bill just passed finally, right? And um, sort of all of the rhetoric out there around, you know, who deserves that money, right? Right. And, and like, why, why are we, <laughs> you know, having those conversations and those battles and what, you know, um, everyone deserves that money and needs yeah. that money. Mm -hmm. um, well, in the parallel too with um, the $15 minimum wage. Oh my that gosh, was, yes. Right, like, um, you know, these senators um voting no against it mm -hmm. and i believe they make like 80 some dollars in, in an hour something like that oh i don't yeah i don't yeah. know i, I right think i saw like, that somewhere yeah those statistics are are, are drastic or, or um striking i yeah. guess like um but you know also most of them are worth millions like oh, they're millionaires and yes. it's like these right like what uh -huh. um and also if you look at it the plan was for it to be sort of slowly scaled in mm -hmm. Right. And I I'm off on a tangent talking yep. about minimum wage. But, you know, fifteen dollars was the demand for minimum wage when that fight started in 2013, 14, 15, yep. somewhere around then. Uh -huh. Right. Um, and that was the number we needed to jump to. And now that number isn't going to meet it. No, nope. let alone when this plan was actually going to instate a fifteen dollar minimum wage like four years from now. Right. Right. When the minimum wage should probably be like $22 or something. So it. like yeah. that, yes. It's all so connected. It's yeah. all so connected. And and really, I think, again, speaks to why something, watching something like this documentary uh, was valuable, right? To sort of see the connections of history to the to the present day. Yeah. Um, you know, the, I want to mention the other part 
a sort of other major part of this documentary was this section around the civil rights movement. And, you know, I think the history that they share is, is very familiar and, and Mm -hmm. what almost Mm -hmm. all of us learn in our history classes in school, right? It's the story about how the civil rights act got passed and the major players and their roles in that folks like president Kennedy and, President Johnson and MLK, you know, among others, and, you know, the story of President Kennedy getting assassinated and and Johnson taking over. And, you know, I think while that's a familiar story and moment in our history that we're all sort of familiar with, I think what I appreciated most was the connection that John made to the struggles we're facing today, right? Like things like climate change and, and racial and economic equality and education. And, you know, I think he really drives the point home that the fight to pass the civil rights act and make that the law of the land took years and it was incredibly difficult and it required this steadfast and unwavering leadership right um and so i think what john offers to us and i think i'm I'm maybe paraphrasing here uh, but he says something to the effect of if america wants to do big things around climate change and education and economic inequality then you ha- then you can do a lot worse than to look at 1964 to 1965 and see uh, that you can make progress, right? And so, you know, I think we've had lots of conversations here about hope, and I think that connects to this idea for sure, and and again to the power and importance of revisiting history um, and what that does and how that plays out in our in our work for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I also think about the. Jumping back to the suffrage movement, like Mm. those protests started in uh, 1913 with the inauguration of Woodrow Wilson. Mm -hmm. Um, And then it took, what, seven years? I think 1920, I think. Yeah, right. Right. But but actually the suffrage movement started even earlier than that. Oh, yeah, yeah, Like like just well. Right. Well, so So, uh, the time that it takes for these things to happen is uh, a long time. Yes. yeah, I think those are all um, super important points to make. Um, all right, so I want to shift. We're going to talk a little bit about some of my issues with the documentary. Uh, yes, you said you had um, some issues. What are I they? Did. So the first part was, um, as they're talking about and introducing John Meacham, I think, um, if I'm remembering correctly, um, you know, he starts talking about... Um, I think his his wife introduces him a little bit and talks yeah. about like him as a child and like some of the things he was involved in. So um, he talked about campaigning for Ronald Reagan mm. when he was 10 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. And they don't, they talk about, they don't talk about Reagan much, but no. it's sort of like in a, in this positive light. Mm. Um, at least that's how I, uh, it seemed to me. That's like, how it hit you. Yeah. 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 Um, mm-hmm. Would you agree? Like, I, this I think seemed, you're right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I think uh, he was spoken about kind of admirably, very briefly. Um, and, you know, looking back on it, he was a palatable version of Donald Trump. Okay. All right. Um, yeah. He laid mm-hmm. the foundations for a lot of the division that we're talking about here today. Yes. Um, he really drug us all into the war on drugs um, <laughs> and created these blame game narratives that yeah. led us to tropes like welfare queen. Yes. Um that, you know, again, is like sort of more of that horizontal thinking yes. in terms of like who's to blame for what. Um, I don't know if he coined makers and takers, but like that's the that is the um, I feel like that's descended from his 
popularity as president, right? Yes. Um, and so those kinds of things led us to the 94 crime bill that pushed us into ridiculous rates of imprisonment in the yep. prison industrial complex. Um, he laid the groundwork and the foundation oh, for a lot that. of that. Yeah. Um, and then welfare reform mm-hmm. that happened in the 90s was based on his the narratives that he and his administration wove around um, welfare queens. Um, yeah. He also led us into this kind of nonsense around trickle-down economics that I think is at the core of the wealth gap we just talked about. Yes. Um, Good point. And so that felt like a big disconnect for me is like, Mm -hmm. and and it's, um, we've sort of sanitized Reagan uh, because there were some things that he did that I think people still admire in terms of like um, confronting the Soviet Union and different things like that, that, you know... um, might be positive um but like looking at these these um domestic policies and the the way the things that he brought to us mm-hmm. i think we we're still reckoning with today oh yeah um it really would have been interesting had even if he had said like maybe reagan just wasn't a a, a part of this sort of documentary that they wanted to address like they sort of had a thought around you know the suffrage movement and all of that right that they wanted to include but even just one little line to sort of acknowledge that yeah. might have might have helped assuage some of the, the the feelings and reactions that you had, right? Just right. to say, like, of course, okay, you were ten years old and you were doing this, like, sure, sure, sure. Mm-hmm. But you know, let's yeah. also name what who he is, what he is, and and what he did, and the legacy that that has left, mm-hmm. given the context of what this documentary is all about. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, agreed. And I, you know, he also says like I, I was campaign for him at ten, and then like you know, shortly thereafter, I realized that we couldn't break the world down into like conservative ideology and, and liberal ideology. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it, it's more complicated than that. Um, which I, you know, I can understand and, and maybe appreciate. Um, but I think the part of that, um, plays out in this next part for me, um, that there was some both sides ism, um, uh, present. Mm-hmm. Um, in the documentary. So, you know, later on as the documentary is kind of wrapping up, there are these images of people clashing in the streets um, from the last few years. So there's uh, Trump supporters and then Black Lives Matter protesters um, sort of clashing uh, and then anti-fascists clashing with neo-Nazis and white supremacists, um, specifically in Charlottesville, Virginia, from that um, series of of incidents and and days. and uh, these images show up uh, as he's making a speech to a crowd uh, and telling them that we've done best as a country when we actually heed Jefferson's words that all men are created equal. Mm. Um, and he says that if we don't heed them, uh, then we're going to be sort of deeply ensconced in two armed camps staring at one another and each other trying not to blink. Mm. Um and um, I kind of get it. Like, I think I understand where he's coming from. Yeah. Um, and I, I think I understand where he's coming from because it's the dominant narrative and yes. how we talk about all of this. Mm. Um, but I also am sick of it um, because fascism survives when we don't confront it head on. Mm. Right. So, like, what would have happened in different places around the country when fascists show up if they hadn't been confronted and shut down yeah. by people who are standing against them. Right. So, um, 
right, like the folks out in the street counter protesting Trump supporters and white supremacist groups. I think they are the better angels of our nature yeah. that are fighting to make sure that we don't fall into fascism yeah. and the worst impulses in our nature. Right. And so that really irritated me that it seemed like there was a little bit of like, these things are the same. Yeah. And I, Cause they're not, they're not. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. I didn't, I didn't pick up on sort of the, the juxtaposition of him talking about it and where he was against those images and, and whatnot. So that is a very, very good point and connection that you make there. Um, and particularly when we think about fascism, like my goodness. Yeah, absolutely. Um, good. All right. So, you know, folks, in every episode, we offer up ideas for application work. And for me, I think an application of this documentary is to both appreciate and adopt some of John's perspective uh, around the power of history, right? And I've sort of said this before and alluded to it before. Um, and I've said it before in one of our previous conversations that, you know, history was not my favorite subject growing up in school, mm-hmm. um, unlike Aaron. But, you know, as an adult and as someone who has engaged in learning and unlearning work and definitely someone, you know, and definitely someone who watched this documentary, you know, I really do appreciate how John presents and makes the case that our history is our present and how understanding our country's complex history can and should inform us here in the present. And so I wanted to just offer that as, as application work for myself and for all of us, right? The idea of taking time to learn and understand the history of the moment and the context, especially as we engage in our learning and unlearning work and as we engage in our movements and certainly as we engage in in the work for social justice. Yeah, um, I think one of the things that he says that I um, appreciated, because uh, I think it's true, is that change in America comes when the powerful take note of what the people are saying. Uh, when those things intersect is when history is made. Yeah, that was powerful. Um, yeah. Because I think that it's, um, it's true. I think we, you know, uh, frequently look to history and ascribe big changes in our country to the leaders who maybe signed them into law or yeah. voted on them or whatever. Yeah. Um, but you know, almost every time when we look at that, there were regular everyday people who mm-hmm. brought that to be voted on, um, or brought that to be signed into law. Yeah. And so it wasn't, um, it's not just the people who are elected to talk oh, yeah. who are doing that, right? Like, so, and I think that's powerful and directly parallels to today, um, right? Like I think about, I get back to our conversation about the inauguration and the election, mm. which feels like a really long time ago. It does. <laughs> um, we talked about how there is hope mm-hmm. uh, because we have somebody new in office who won't dismiss the people yes. out of hand. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think the jury might still be out on that. Mm-hmm. Um I think time will tell if Biden is going to listen to the people, listen to us collectively. Um, but I think that this, you know, it's an important point because um, our history shows that when we collectively show up and start shouting about what's important to us, then the powerful start to take note and start to make some um, some movements. Um, so, yeah, yeah, that's important. This idea of us shouting and uh, the work that regular people do to mm-hmm. make these big changes happen. And the fact that, as we've said before, it takes years uh, often for 
that big change to happen. I appreciate that. All right, let's let's shift gears and talk about homework. So real talk, homework for me is to read the book. Uh, And for a little bit of honesty and transparency, our wonderful friend Myra, if you're listening, hello, Myra, actually gifted a copy of the book to both of us a while back. Um, In in fact, it was a signed copy of the book, which was super nice and a a really great gift. Uh, But in all honesty, I have not gotten around to reading it yet. I'm so sorry, Myra. Um, So I definitely want to read the book. um, And that's in large part because of, uh, and due to sort of watching this documentary, I, I, I really enjoyed it uh, overall and, and I appreciate John's perspective. And so I want to read the book and learn more from him about what else has been compelling to him in terms of our country's history and what can be applied to our work today. So, yeah, I think that's my homework. And I certainly invite others to get the book and, and join me in that as well. Yeah, I think reading the book uh, and diving in more depth is um a great idea. Um, you know, I just flipped through it uh, before we started recording and there were different um, pieces of history that stood out and that yeah. I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so I think that that is um, that's a, a great idea and I'm interested in engaging more with his broader thoughts on what some of what's going on right now um, because I think that um, uh, there's stuff to learn and then there's, you know, I think there's probably stuff to push back on too. Yes. Right. Like, um, as I think about watching this documentary and my own reactions to it. Yeah. Um, but I think his whole point is a good one. We need to understand history to avoid traps, um, that we can fall into, um, mm-hmm. and look to history as a case study for things to do and things not to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes. I feel like that that has been, um, part of our perpetual, his- uh, homework on the show is, um, looking to some of that history, like, right. Like we've talked about 1619 project and Mm -hmm. we've talked about uh, a few different moments in history that point to where we are today and trying to make those connections. Um, Yeah. Very good. All right. All right. Well, Aaron, you are up. What are you bringing to the table in our next episode? So I'm bringing a book. Okay. Um, Speaking of books. <laughs> apparently I like to bring books. I think that's the, that's one of the trends is that I bring the books. Yeah. Um, so we've talked about this person a few times on the podcast, um, but I think it's time we actually engage with some of her writing in more depth. Okay. Um, so I'm bringing a book by Bell Hooks. Um, it's called The Will to Change, uh, which is part of her series in writing about love. Mm. Um, so specifically this one's about men, masculinity and love. Uh, And so to quote, to pull up a quote from the back um, cover, it says, everyone needs to be, needs to love and be loved, even men. But to know love, men must be able to look at the ways that patriarchal culture keeps them from knowing themselves, from being in touch with their feelings, from loving. Um, So I read this, what feels like a long time ago now, um, (laughs) Because everything feels like a long time ago yeah. um, in this moment. But uh, I'm really excited to reread it and talk about it with you here uh, yeah. on, the, on the show. That sounds great. I'm definitely looking forward to that. I think we're going to have a great conversation about it. I'm putting it out there in the universe. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it, it's true. I can't wait. All right. So with that, we want to thank you for joining us today and for listening to Interdependent Study. And folks, you know what we want you to do. Please subscribe, leave a rating and review, share our podcast with the people in your life. And of course, follow us on social media. Yes. And thank you for listening. And remember, it's not about us, but it is about us. And we'll talk to you next week.